Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2216 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is the final message of a nine-week series titled, What Does God Want? This series reveals that God desires us to be part of His family as His image bearers. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now over these past eight weeks, our story narrative overview of the Bible has been to answer that question, what does God want? And the answer we discovered over these past eight weeks is that God wants you, and God wants everyone who will ever live. In other words, God wanted a human family. God wanted co-workers to take care of that creation that he made specifically for them. He loves you and desires that you also love him. Your life has value to him because he wants you to know who you are in him. Two weeks ago, we started over a snapshot of what the good news is. What is the gospel? And then last week, we switched from believing aspect of God's story to the loyalty aspect of his story. We looked at what is discipleship. And then we reviewed the first two of 10 attributes of what does a disciple do. So if you look at your bulletin insert today on the side with the red lettering, what does God want at the top of it? We're going to go over the remaining eight attributes of what a disciple does. The first one we looked at last week was disciples love God, their neighbor, and each other. And I have a verse on your bulletin insert that went along with that. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So we know that number one sort of incorporates or encompasses the other nine attributes of what a disciple does. The second one was disciples take care of each other in a loving, nurturing community. And that's why we meet on Sundays. That's why churches throughout the world meet, to have that loving, nurturing community as a disciple. So let's start this week with disciples fellowship, the third attributes. Fellowship in the New Testament is a word that describes the activity of a believing community, a nurturing community. Caring for each other is part of biblical fellowship. Because when believers meet, needs can be met or discerned, and then they can be met. That said, we want a short discussion about fellowship to talk about what the other things that the disciples do. Now, many Christians today equate fellowship with having fun together. And for sure, doing fun things do strengthen our relationships with each other. Enjoying the company of people builds those bonds that we have with each other. But that isn't all that biblical fellowship is about in the sense of becoming disciples. Now, the primary difference between doing fun things together and biblical fellowship is that fellowship isn't just about spending time together, having a good time. It's much more intentional than that. The goal of fellowship is ultimately to become of one mind around Jesus Christ so that we can have his mind in us as every disciple should. In other words, the purpose of his fellowship is discipleship. 
A couple of verses in Philippians that go along with this idea or capture this idea. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that we are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And then a passage that I read last week, I'm going to read part of it again this week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What does it mean to have the same attitude that Christ had? Well, it means being one in mind with the community of believers. Does it, though, imply that we have the same thinking about everything down to the last little detail? Not really. The Bible speaks of unity, but not necessarily uniformity. We don't have to be robots or lemmings and think and do exactly the same thing. But a better way to understand the same attitude is that the community members pursue the same goal, to be like Jesus. The goal is harmony, not unanimity. It's pursuing Christ's likeness and living in a community together as believers, supporting one another. That's what fellowship is. Early believing communities engaged in several activities to build toward that goal. They prayed, they fasted, they worshiped, and they studied the scriptures together. Since all these activities are things that disciples do both individually and together corporately as a group, let's discuss each of those separately. So our fourth attribute of what a disciple does is disciples pray. In the simplest terms, prayer is about talking with God or talking to God. But that needs some thought, some additional exploration on it. Doesn't God already know what we're thinking? Of course he does. So you might ask, well, why should I pray? Because prayer isn't informing God about something he needs to know, something he's not sure about. Prayer is a way to show God and others that we depend on God. It's a way to express that we want God to act in our lives, that we're not relying on ourselves to express what we want. That we are dependent on him to find solutions to the problems that we have in our lives. Prayer fosters a sense of dependence on and security in God alone, the one who provides us everything. In that sense, prayer is a form of worship. As we have our prayer time here, that's part of our worship. It's the same as true as we pray in groups. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples referring to John the Baptist and his disciples or followers asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus' response was that now famous Lord's Prayer, which we recite every Sunday here as a congregation. And that's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, or Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. It's important to note that Jesus didn't tell his disciples the exact words to pray. 
in the Lord's Prayer. Instead, he told them to pray like this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he gave us a model or a template that we don't need a formula or a particular set of words to talk to God. God wants us to talk to him just like we would talk to our best friend or our spouse, an intimate conversation with them. That's all God wants us to do. He doesn't want something flowery. It doesn't have to be something that others will take notice of. But we also should pray and make sure it's never done for a show, as he tells us or guards us against in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We're not to pray for a show, but we're to pray to God. And there's nothing in the Lord's Prayer that God isn't always already aware of. Again, prayer isn't about filling gaps in God's knowledge. He knows all things. Instead, the Lord's Prayer is laced with things like worship and honor and hallowed be your name, obedience to God's will, your will be done, forgiveness, forgive our debts as we forgive others, and requests from deliverance and temptation and evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Prayer is designed to line our hearts with God's lordship and then build an attitude of dependence on God. That's why we pray. The Bible is filled, or is filled with prayers, both individual prayers and group prayers. And if you read them, you'll learn how to pray. And also, it's a means of pouring out our feelings to God. As many of the Psalms where David poured out his feelings in anger, in anguish, in remorse. We can go to God with our anger, our grief, our sorrow, our love, our excitement. God isn't learning anything when we do that, so we can't say, well, I can't go to God when I'm angry. Yes, you can. You go to God, say, God, I don't understand why this has happened to me. Or in sorrow, God, why is this happening? Or in excitement, God, praise your name for what you've done in my heart and my life. That's all God wants from us, to bring our petitions, our requests directly to him. We learn to submit to him in that way. Believing that he is good and he knows best for what we need. Asking God for help. Jesus said that God would answer the prayers on the context of his wider, wise will. In other words, God's answer may not always be what we expect from him or always be what we want from him. God knows everything that's going on all around us and the whole human experience and behavior. He is working out his more excellent plan for our lives, more excellent than we could ever imagine. If we prayed, got what we prayed for, we would be sorry that we didn't allow God to give us what is best for us. And God may answer us unexpectedly, not what we want, but what is in coordinate with his will. The prayers of the Bible are often not self-focused even. Most of the content is aimed at blessing others and asking God's mercy upon other people. Paul's letters are habitually include prayers to whom he was writing to. Prayer is not always or even primarily expressing our own needs and wants. Yes, we can bring our own needs and wants, but that's not necessarily the primary purpose for our prayer. Jesus prayed frequently. He followed the teaching of his prayer to say to pray persistently, as Paul wrote in Colossians 4 and Luke wrote in chapter 18. Jesus even didn't get every prayer answered in the way that he desired, which was acceptable to him. Since he was more concerned with God's will that it would be done. And it takes me back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before his trial, 
his, his punishment and his crucifixion, Jesus cried out, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. So Jesus even says, so let's pray in the context of God's wider will. And it's an important reminder about our prayer. Jesus taught that God would answer prayers when we prayed in Luke chapter 11, but we cannot assume that God will answer them in exactly the way we want them, especially if we're being disobedient to him, or if it's not in concert with his own will for us. We want his will in our lives, as we're told in James 3 and 1 John chapter 3. So disciples pray. That's one of the things disciples do. The fifth thing that disciples do is they fast. Fasting is an unfamiliar activity for most of us. Generally, fast means to abstain from something for at least a period of time. To fast from food means to go without eating. This is the kind of fast that we see most often in the Bible, but it's not the only type of fasting. Jesus fasted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, and he presumed that his disciples would continue the practice of fasting. But he warned them not to do it as the hypocrites do, just for show, in Matthew chapter 6. Fasting isn't about drawing attention to ourselves. It's about our relationship with God. And why we're fasting is to bring our focus back into God. Fasting isn't merely about abstaining from food. You can fast from all sorts of things in whatever manner you want. Jesus wasn't recommending a strategy for losing weight on a fast. He has something to do, something else in mind when he fasted and when he talked about fasting. When the Bible contains many instances of fasting, there are no specific rules. Paul even noted that married couples may want to fast from intimacy with each other for a period of time to draw special attention to prayer in their needs in their life. But then he says, come back together afterwards so that you're not drawn into temptation. But why fast? What is the purpose of fasting? Fasting is a spiritual practice designed to help us to focus on prayer. It does, how does it do that? Perhaps an example would help. Say you decided to fast from food for a day. During that day, anytime you felt hungry, when your stomach started to growl, when you felt like you should eat something, you're reminded to pray. And fasting is a reminder that directs our attention to why you decided to fast in the first place. Another way to think about fasting is to ask, what distracts us during the day from our focus on God? And generally, our walk with God. It could be our phones. It could be a television. It could be our work, even, if we get too consumed with our work or some hobby that we might have. Then we can set that aside for a period of time, a fast, to bring our minds back to God and into prayer. Now, early church communities collectively fasted at times in Acts chapter 13 and 14. The Old Testament community, fasting was a way to show collective sorrow for sin and repentance, as told in Jeremiah 36.6 and Joel chapter 12, 2, verse 12. So we see a practice of what a disciple does is that they occasionally will fast to draw their attention back to God. The sixth attribute of what a disciple does is to worship. And we might think worship is easy to define and understand. Isn't that what we do on Sunday mornings? Well, it isn't, but it is. 
We all too often equate worship with what happens in a church service, mainly even with the music. You say, that's our time of worship. Well, that isn't worship, but that's part of worship, but not in worship in itself. At least in the terms that the Bible defines it. Through music and songs are part of Christian gatherings, and they should be, as we're told in Ephesians and Colossians. Another propensity of our culture, though, is to think of worship as something that's inner mystical feeling that we have, some sort of strange worship feeling we have. But that isn't worship either. There's several passages that we could think about, but let's look at two of those. One of those I read last week, which is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of what he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But another time of worship was when this Jesus was at the well and that woman from Samaria came out. And he said in John chapter 4, verse 23, but a time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for way, those who will worship him in that way. As we discussed in the passage in Romans, both last week when we talked about living a holy life, and this week when we're talking about worship, worship is living as an imager of Jesus Christ. Living like Christ would is a form of worship. Don't be conformed to this world its values, and its self-gratifying pursuits. That is worship of God because we're honoring God by our lives. True worship, thus, is a matter of our heart and our minds as we live as imagers of Christ. Now, the second passage is interesting for a specific reason. Jesus told the woman that God was seeking people to worship him. Now, worship is, therefore, not something that originates within us itself. We're invited to respond to God, his goodness, and his love. How and where we can do that can vary. We can do it individually, with or without music, within a church, or outside a church. We can worship any time, any way, any place, any manner. We can do it corporately, and we can fellowship with other believers. And it's important that we gather together corporately to worship, but we can worship on our own Anytime. When believers met in fellowship, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 tells us, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and to good works. In other words, they encouraged each other to spiritually worship God by imitating Jesus Christ. They praised God for his goodness and his love, his providential presence in their lives. Praise includes singing songs and making music, as Matthew 26 and Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 tell us. But it's also in unmistakably living a holy life, a life set apart. And that's what holy means, to be set apart for God. Philippians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 tells us this. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. And what is glory and praise to God? 
by living a righteous life. That's our worship to him, giving him glory and praise. And we cannot lose sight of spiritual worship of God is intrinsically tied to how we live, as we were told in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's not about a 30-minute experience at home or here at church. It's about a life oriented by and directed specifically to God. So we see that disciples worship. And the second, seventh thing that disciples do is they confess sin and accept God's forgiveness. One thing a new disciple must come to grips with early on after they've accepted Christ and believe is that they will fail. We are not sinless like Jesus, nor can we ever hope to be. The Bible is clear on this point. The disciples sin. Mark says it three times in chapter 14. And then later on, John, one of the apostles, wrote later in his life in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we will have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. It's wonderful to know, though, that our membership into God's family is not due to our performance. Our good works cannot put God into our debt. He never owes us everlasting life on account of anything that we've done, any merit of our own. We can never accumulate enough God points to gain membership into his family. Our performance or lack thereof did not move God away from us. God loved us while we were still sinners, as Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says. Consequently, we must remember... Since salvation can never be gained by moral perfection, it cannot be lost by moral imperfection. Think about that. Since salvation can never be gained by moral perfection, it can never be lost by our moral imperfection. When we fail, we do not lose our salvation. Now, in light of our imperfections, the true disciples of Jesus must stay focused on the kindness and love of God. Let me read again that passage from John in his letter. It tells us precisely what to do when we fail God, and we will, either by doing something that isn't precisely or consistently imitating Jesus, or leaving something undone that would be consistent with living like Jesus. The Apostle John wrote, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. We sin and fail, we will, sometimes on a daily basis. We must acknowledge it. That's what confession means. Confession and repentance is acknowledging before God, yes, I have failed God once again. I'm sorry. Give me the strength to do better. He's already forgiven us. We're not begging him for that forgiveness. We're just going to him and expressing our sorrow for not imitating Jesus as we should. We should not hide, excuse, or rationalize our sin. God wants us to admit it. Why? Because we need to be humbled before him. We, we must remember that our salvation costs someone else everything. That someone else was Jesus Christ, who died, suffered, died, and then rose again for our salvation. 
It wasn't something that we earn. Confession to God of our sins acknowledges that we as children of God are there because of what Jesus did for us. We can be sure that our sins will not separate us from God. We will not be kicked out of his family, as we're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And God knew us before we embraced the gospel, and he knew that we were flawed. It's not something that surprises him when we sin. It doesn't change how he feels about us, but it changes our attitude when we confess to him and connect that relationship to him. So the obvious question then is, why should we care about sinning? The New Testament disciples came across that same problem with their people. The Apostle Paul brought it up in his letter to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and then 12 through 16. Let me read that. Well then, should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And then dropping down to verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you are, have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. You no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well, well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Notice the Bible doesn't say, God forbid, don't sin, God won't love you anymore. Instead, the concern is about you. God's concern for us is us returning to self-bondage and self-destruction, both for us and destruction of others around us. So on one hand, we will sin. But on the other hand, we should try to avoid sinning. This struggle is something the Apostle Paul knew very well as he wrote in Romans chapter 7 about that internal struggle that he continually struggled with. He wanted to do what was right, but every time he turned around, he was doing something he shouldn't. Yet he was a remarkable follower of Jesus. The New Testament often alerts us to that war that's happening within us, inside us. Our hearts want to follow Jesus, but our unperfected selves want self-gratification. We want preeminence. We want to live like we want to live. We want to rule ourselves in allowing, instead of allowing God to rule through us as 1 Peter 2.11 and James chapter 4, verse 1 tells us. As we seek to follow Jesus, though, as the old saying goes, keep short accounts with God. Don't let sin flourish. Don't let it continue on in your lives. The idea is that when we fail, we should quickly confess it to God and accept his forgiveness that he's already given to us. We should remember what our sins cost Jesus Christ. Then we should keep on following him in loyal love, grateful that he went to the cross for us while we were still sinners. Another reason is we are siblings. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and we're to imitate Christ. 
So we see that number seven was disciples confess sin and then accept forgiveness. Number eight, attribute of a disciple is they study the Bible. Now the early churches of the of, in the early church, believers would listen to the apostles' teaching and then study the scriptures together. Paul and the other missionary apostles did the same thing when they started churches as described throughout the book of Acts. This was a common method of Bible study in that day of learning the Bible in the New Testament era because rarely anybody had a copy of the scriptures themselves. Many believers were illiterate. They could not even read. Even though we're part of a, and blessed to be called a part of a literate culture, and we have dozens of different translations that are free to us, we can benefit from gathering a community of believers and studying the Word of God together. Learning the Word of God is necessary for following Jesus Christ. How can we learn about sin, those behaviors and attitudes that we should avoid, and spirit-filled living, those of the way we should behave? The Scripture teaches us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, to throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on the new nature created by God, truly and righteous and holy. Then we become part of God's family through the faith in the gospel. The Spirit indwells us. It helps us to live fruitful lives. And one of the passages of Scripture, which I think shows us a blueprint for life of how we should live and how we should not live. And that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. First, we'll look at how not to live, the wrong blueprint, and then we'll look at what a true blueprint is for our lives. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation of the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, burst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Sounded like a pretty inclusive list of sins. I'm not sure what else we could add there, but there are other sins like these. But let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. This is the blueprint of our lives once we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So if you want to know whether your life is showing and reflecting a life lived for God, a life imitating Jesus, being an imager of Jesus, your life blueprint, does it exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Because if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the fruit of the Spirit should be an outcropping of that that should be the blueprint for our lives. The disciples learned to live out the word of God in their lives. This is how Jesus showed that he loved God. He obeyed God's will. Community is a significant help here and why we come together every week as believers together. Because in community, we can come in contact with mature believers who have followed Jesus for many years. 
We can learn how their lives have been changed as they learn to take off that old and put on the new. We can go to them for encouragement as we struggle to live like Jesus. They can remind us of God's love and forgiveness in their lives. They can under, we can understand that Christians struggle to turn from sin and to do what is right. Even the apostles struggled against what was doing what was right, as Paul wrote in Romans 7 and again in Galatians chapter 2. Community, coming together as believers, is accountability. It helps us have empathy for one another. It helps us to encourage one another to seek and to be more conformed to the example of Jesus. So we see that the disciples in number eight study the Bible. Our ninth attribute of a disciple is disciples suffer. Now this element may surprise you, but it's evident in the New Testament that Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will per persecute you. And if you had listened to me, if they had listened to me, they will listen to you. This is where believing loyalty is really tested. It's one thing to learn to change our hearts and to live like Christ. It's quite another thing to follow Jesus and then have to suffer for it. The apostles suffered for following Jesus throughout the book of Acts, we are told. Holding on to the faith is a theme throughout the New Testament in Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and 1 Peter. And Peter, one of those 12 original disciples, he had seen Jesus suffered. He had seen him go through the agony of his trial and crucifixion on the cross. Peter himself was imprisoned and beaten for his faith, as we're told in Acts chapter 12. So he wrote to the believers who were experiencing persecution and they were displaced and scattered throughout the, the kingdom. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow his steps. He never sinned, nor did he deceive anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left the case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. What's the first thing we want to do when we're persecuted or someone treats us wrong? We want to lash back out at them. But that's not what Christ would have done. That's not what Christ did. He left the case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. So enduring suffering requires that us to remember that the gospel does not promise us an ease in this life, but an everlasting life with God in the life to come. This world with its constraints on creation and constraints on ourselves and the sin we have to live with is not the home that we'll live with in eternity, but it'll be remade into a new global Eden where there'll be no curse on creation, there'll be no curse on us, we'll live with immortal bodies forever with God. So disciples may have to suffer is one of the attributes. And our final attribute is disciples make more disciples. While loving God, our neighbor, and each other is essential for being a disciple, the most crucial thing that disciples do is to make other disciples. 
This is what Jesus commanded his followers right before he ascended up into heaven. And that's why it's called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 20. And I have that at the bottom of your bulletin insert there below the graphic. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. That's a big part of the story, overview of the Bible. The authority, those supernatural powers that had controlled and enslaved the nations for centuries have been taken away from them when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he gained the authority over the entire world to establish God's kingdom throughout the world. God wants his children, his partners, his co-workers with him, those disciples of his son Jesus to share the gospel and the good news everywhere we go. God wants as many people in his family as possible. Our task is to tell of that good news, to live it out in front of others, to invite them into the family of God, and then to teach them to do the same. How do we do this? We share our faith. And how we can we believe, how we became to believe the gospel? And it's amazingly simple. There's three simple steps to do this. Tell people about your life before you believe the gospel, and you embrace God's through Jesus Christ. People love stories. We all enjoy listening to a good story, especially about other people. And why is this? There's always something in a person's story that we read or hear that connects us to our own story. So when we tell someone about our life before understanding the gospel, some of the details of our lives will be familiar to the person that you're telling or talking to, and that story will connect to them. Second, tell them why hearing and believing the gospel was your turning point in life for you. Usually, it has something to do with the forgiveness of sin. It's beautiful to know that despite what we've done to ourselves and to others, God still loves us so much that he offers us salvation. To share the story how well God sent his son, Jesus, so we could be forgiven and have everlasting life with him. The thing that God wanted from the very beginning from the very beginning of creation, he had this plan in motion. And third, tell about people about the impact of your lives and believing the gospel and being forgiven. Tell them how, what it's like to understand and know God's forgiveness and his love for you, the promise of everlasting life. Tell them how it's changed your perspective on who you are and why you're here. Tell them how embracing the gospel has changed you from the inside out. Now, some people want to see a proof of that change of heart, and that's normal, and that's an opportunity for all of us to imitate Jesus. This is one of the fundamental reasons why to live a life that imitates Jesus. Jesus loved and served people. People want to be loved, and they look for authenticity in other people. So responding to people the way Jesus would is a powerful impact on their lives. They will notice if we live like Jesus Christ they will know when someone loves them or not. They will know when we put them ahead of ourselves for the sake of the message of the gospel. Not everyone will believe. Not everyone believed Jesus. Not everyone will believe you. Not everyone will have that change of heart, but some will. Maybe many of them will. 
So as we come to the conclusion of not only this message, but our series on what does God want, if you look at your other side of your bulletin insert, just as a snapshot review, what does God want? First, we know that God wanted a family. So he created this world with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve turned their backs on him, disobeyed him, but God still wanted a family. That played out through Noah, through the flood, and then God, after the Tower of Babel, set aside one nation through Abraham to be his family. And then he was betrayed by that family. So he says, the only way I can solve this in the scope of eternity is to become one of the humans. So God joined his human family. After he joined his human family, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So God pursued his family. Then, because of that promise of the Holy Spirit, we're in God's family forever. And that's through what we, what is that good news? What is that gospel? And the gospel takes us to discipleship. And today we looked at what does a disciple do? God wants you and everyone who will ever live. In other words, God wanted a human family. God wants co-workers to care for his creation that he made specifically for them. God wants you to know who you are and why your life has value to him. He loves you and desires that you also love him. So now we're coming to a conclusion of this series, the story of the Bible in nine weeks. What does God want? He wants you. He wants you and his family. And he wants you to tell others how to be in his family, how to become citizens of the kingdom of God. So we may all dwell together in that new global Eden together as one family, a family of God. I pray that you've enjoyed this series as much as I've enjoyed preparing for it. And starting next week, we're going to switch to three Easter messages. So next week, we're going to look at making it all better, the story of Lazarus. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 11 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we just give you thanks. We think, give you thanks for wanting us to be part of your human family. We give you thanks that you've allowed us to understand this, to recognize this, to be part of your family, Father. Help us to share this good news with those that we come in contact with. Help us to be willing to live a life that's pleasing to you, to imitate Jesus Christ, that we might be an example to those who see our lives, even when we don't have an opportunity to speak with them, Father, but they might know that we're our, your disciples by our love one for another. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day.
every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.